0: and welcome to this latest edition of 101 George Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and each week I invite a guest onto the show to discuss their work and hopefully entertain and inform. This week's guest is Alan McClure. Alan is a writer, storyteller and musician based in Southwest Scotland. His creative output is eclectic and encompasses oral storytelling, poetry, songs, novels, short stories and audio sketches. Alan, you've had a book, um, Callum and the Mountain, published last year in August by Beaten Track Publishing. This book seems to be very much rooted in nature and the environment. What inspired you to write it?
1: Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, just a sense of place is something that I've been lucky enough to have ever since i was a wee boy really i grew up in aberdeen and the countryside around aberdeen you know the aberdeenshire uh, d-side is stunning and when i was a schoolboy, there were a couple of teachers who were keen to encourage us to go out to the highlands and places like that so we would do camping trips and do a bit of monroe bagging and things and just since being you know the age of 12 13 my happiest times have been away from cities out and about uphills in forests and things like that and I feel a very deep sense of connection to the landscape and I think it's something that a generation are maybe losing now so I was concerned to try and write something that would just maybe reinvigorate an idea that we are connected you know we're an integral part of the natural world and we can get to know it on a really fundamental and kind of almost personal level. So there was a bit of that. There's also just some good adventure and some, hopefully, engaging characters in there too.
0: Absolutely, I think. There's so often a disconnect with young people when it comes to the environment that they're in. And a lot of the time they seem to disappear in technology or they disappear in the virtual world. And you can't blame them. If if the internet was around when we were younger, I dare say that we were there, we would do the same. Um, Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I almost think we dodged a bullet, you know, growing up when we did because... There were only four channels on the telly. There was nothing to watch. You might as well go out and climb a tree. You know, it <laughs> was, was quite good. I, I, you know, I, I know that uh, I think maybe sometimes the idea of children being lost in technology can be overstated. Because as soon as they get the opportunity to go out uh, into the wild or onto the beach or whatever, you know, that it's, it's not something you need to train people to do. It's an absolutely integral part of our, of our characters. We want to be in the world that we live in. And obviously the technology is incredible and uh, enormous fun and massively useful. But it's not the th- sort of real world, three dimensional, temporally amazing thing that the, that the natural world can be. So, you know, I think it's I wanted to write something that, that showed that love and that enthusiasm. And well, thankfully, I think some of the young readers have been picking up on that.
0: There's something visceral about introducing people, young people to the natural world or the world around them they they get to experience it through all their senses and sometimes from my experience working with young people, sometimes they're surprised by that. And they're often surprised at how interesting and weird and strange and occasionally dangerous the outside world can be. But within that, that's exciting.
1: It is. And I think uh, risk aversion is a serious thing that happens if you're if you're closeted too much from it. And obviously if you're asked, hey, do you want to get wet and cold, you're sort of your initial Your initial reaction is probably going to be, well, no, not really. I'm quite happy where I am in my chair, thanks. But actually going out and getting in a a boat, you know, getting your guddling around in the mud and getting mucky and getting cold and being fortunate enough to be able to go home and get clean and warm again at the end is is one of the, it's just, it's lovely. And, you know, the hard surfaces, hard edges, recognising the world has got um, you know high cliffs you can fall off and things and but still knowing that you can you can navigate this safely you can kind of engage in the environment and develop a mastery of your environment which is profoundly important to think in being a successful human being really
0: absolutely and I, I should say and this leads leads quite nicely onto this that we are recording this during lockdown. Yes. So we're still in a period in Scotland where everyone, not just young people, but everyone, is is finding it difficult to get outside. We're in southwest Scotland. We're we're rather fortunate because it's easy to self isolate or it's easy to socially distance from people. But we are we are in interesting times, I should say.
1: We are. And I hope that it doesn't uh, stop young folks from getting out, because obviously all the advice suggests that the safest place to be probably is outdoors. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as you say, we are just stunningly lucky. This whole period, me and my family have just been counting our blessings on a daily basis, because we live in Gatehouse of Fleet, and within walking distance we have woods, we've got hills, we've got a river we can swim in, uh, we've got the beach. You know, we are. I don't mean to brag, you know, but uh, this uh, of all the places in the world to be isolated, this is uh, pretty well a paradise really. Um, and I'm hoping that the kids I teach who are also obviously experiencing lockdown are taking the opportunity to to get out and about. And there is, that, you know, the, we've been teaching remotely, I'm a primary school teacher too, as you'd probably know, and trying to teach through screens all the time. There's the potential positive that kids get sick of the screens and really yearn for the chance to get out and get the fresh air and stretch their legs. And if that is something that's developed, then I really hope that's something they can carry on, you know, when lockdown is finally lifted. And remember that probably the best period of lockdown was getting out and about.
0: And it's, it's interesting, though, because we see ourselves as being lucky because we're based in rural Scotland. It's important to remember that not everyone is based in a rural area. And I understand that you have you've worked on a project with cronachan Books called Stay Home, an e-book where if you are if you're a young person and you're based in a city or a large town, you were encouraged earlier on in the lockdown to stay home. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, yeah. Well the project was put together really quickly by Joan Haig, who's the author of Tiger Skin Rug, which is a beautiful book which I warmly recommend to everybody. And she just decided that it'd be nice to get a kind of in the moment response to this situation from children's authors recognizing the sacrifices that children are making because I think the news is rightly full of the sacrifices that adults are making and the incredible work that our NHS staff are doing and uh, you know uh, people who work in shops and retail are putting themselves in harm's way to make sure society continues to function normally but the kids have been making massive sacrifices they've missed their pals they've missed their schooling and uh, Joan and Anne Glennie at Cranachan Books just wanted to acknowledge this I think and say we know what you're going through and we appreciate the fact that you're being patient and so there are 40 authors in there including Maisie by the way Maisie Chan Maisie Chan, yep she's Excellent. got one in there and uh, Barbara Henderson and Joan Lennon loads of really great authors are in there And there's short poems, short stories, flash fiction, one or two little factual pieces about viruses, Mm. and it's completely free. And kids can download it from the Cranachan website. And hopefully, if they do, they will feel that some of us some of us appreciate what they've been going through and and really do think they've been playing a blinder and thumbs up to the kids of scotland basically and obviously the rest of the uk but this is a particularly scottish project
0: absolutely absolutely and i think one of the things that has certainly surprised me is the way creatives and educators have have raised their game and raised they've raised themselves to the moment Mm. and, and overcome some challenges that really if someone would have said that there would be a worldwide pandemic i wouldn't believe them
1: no, that's right. And I suppose this is where technology really does come into its own. So it's all very well like going out in the woods. But it has been a small blessing that we've had this opportunity to or we've had this uh, mechanism to stay in touch with kids. Mm. And they've had the mechanism to stay in touch with each other to some extent. You know, that certainly the older kids have been on social media and keeping in touch that way, which wouldn't have been an option back in the day. So um, it, it certainly has its uses, technology, but there's no question, it's not really a substitute for face-to-face interaction. And in terms of teaching, you know, the, the class culture, which is a, the best thing about teaching, when you get that feeling that we're all in this together, you know, we're all in this journey together, a lot of that has been kind of diluted or kind of lost when we're all stuck in our own wee uh, habitats, if you like, and occasionally communicating over, over the internet. It's not quite the same. But as you say, people have risen to the challenge. Uh, adults and children alike. I think we've there's a lot to be proud of and a lot to be happy about the way we've the way we've handled this this uh, crisis in the country.
0: For someone who is so creative and productive, be it through your writing, storytelling, or music, where do you find your inspiration?
1: Well, from a whole bunch of different places. We spoke about landscape a wee bit already, and that's a big one. And I must say, you know, the natural world. I don't know why I feel so connected to it, but if I'm ever feeling gloomy or, uh, you know, a bit down as has happened over this kind of isolation period, I just need to see, you know, like a a jackdaw winking at me or something. And I'm instantly taken out of a a bleak mood and it's just an instant spirit lifting thing. So that's a big one, but people have to be the biggest inspiration and particularly being a teacher, getting to know generations of kids is an unbelievable privilege for a children's writer. Uh, I mean, it's a Absolutely maddening and hair tearing, as well, sometimes, as you know. But they're such an amazing asset to the country. And uh, I don't, I, I had no idea before I became a teacher, I became a teacher quite late in life, but I didn't appreciate how much fun um, spending the day with kids could be and hearing the way they interact with each other and seeing their enthusiasm. The lack of, they're not jaded, you know, they're not cynical. They, they sort of take life as it comes, which has been really important over this last period. So that's a huge bit. I would say, and I, I should also say, maybe just language. I'm a bit of a wordy chap, as you've probably noticed already. But I like the rhythm of language, and I like the um, the nonsense fun you can have with words. And we're very lucky uh, with the English language, and particularly north of the border in Scotland and parts of Northern England too, with uh, with dialect words and Scots words just to add to the rhythm and add to the music of the language. The more different ways we have of saying things, the better we can say them. So I quite often will just say a phrase or hear a phrase which has a good little bounce to it, a sort of musicality to it. And I will have that. I will pinch it and use it if I can. And I really hope that in some of my writing, I encourage that love of language. I think we're encouraged to be very uh, simplistic with children's writing, and you don't need to be. Kids love nonsense, and they love bouncy words and big, tasty words. They like to get their teeth into them. And uh, so that, that's uh, an inspiration for me as well.
0: Absolutely. I, I interviewed Dr. Maureen Farrell uh, of the University of Glasgow um, a few episodes back. And we were talking about the, the tendency within schools or any kind of educational uh, setting where we approach a text or approach a piece of writing and we try to analyse it rather than enjoy it.
1: Yes, you do. I mean, I despair at the way it's been taught south of the border. I don't know if all the horror stories you hear are true, but I looked at one, one of the, uh, the sats that they sit, and it was talking about front-loaded adverbial clauses or something like that. And I thought, you know, nobody needs to know that. It's such minutiae. It's, I mean, it's interesting from an academic point of view, but that is not about to instill a love of language or a love of communication in any child. That's going to make them think, "Whoa, this written language, this reading business is not for me. It's just going about it absolutely backwards. I think the enjoyment has to come first. And then, you know, you'll be inspired maybe to figure out, well, what, what, just what are the thematic elements in here? And how could I maybe replicate this sort of um, narrative structure or something like that? But that's, that's secondary, I think. That comes after the, the initial punch of enjoyment that should come from any good bit of writing.
0: I remember my favourite poem, and it was a poem that I introduced my S1s when they would come up. The Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll brilliant and we never analyzed it but i said just have a play with with the words and what do you think they mean and start shouting them and running around and 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 become the jabberwocky seeing them analyze it through action yes through their love of words was was just a joy to behold
1: absolutely and you know that thing of entering into the the text physically is underrated too i think i mean i shouldn't say it's underrated because i know lots of teachers who do this absolutely brilliantly but when i used to read stories to my oldest fergus When he was very wee you know sort of three and four i was reading him things like charlie and the chocolate factory and before we got to read the next chapter we had to reenact the previous chapter he wanted to be charlie and this and say what would happen if i pressed this button and what and why and we would just you know it was so much fun we were just inhabiting that world um for a while before we moved on and and read the next bit and you can totally replicate that in classes and i'm delighted to hear you were doing it with poetry as well because I think there's a terrible misconception that poetry is a very serious academic discipline that you can't really have fun. It's not meant to be fun poetry. Uh, I mean, I'm absolutely passionate about uh, teaching poetry for its own sake, but also seeing the poetry that's in nearly all good writing, all good children's writing in particular. So, yeah, no, I love the physicality of getting into it and dramatising things and having fun
0: with it. What is your favourite children's book or children's story?
1: To read out loud... I've had, a Charlie, and the Roald Dahl is brilliant, so uh, year on year I've been reading James and the Giant Peach to my primary fours, and that's great fun, because you can do all the different uh, voices for the centipede, and Miss Spider's good like this, and you know, you get all the, the different dialogue, and that's so much fun, and the daft rhymes and stuff are all great. When I was wee, I had a book of fairy tales by Terry Jones, do you know, of uh, Monty yeah. Python theme, yeah. and it's yeah. a collection of stories, I've still got that book, i I don't know what it was about it the illustrations are amazing first about uh, michael foreman mm. but the stories are magnificent they're short and punchy and they've got uh, generally got a fairly clear point although i wouldn't necessarily have got the point when i was little you know i was just enjoying the story but uh they they're usually from a fairly socialist background and you know uh, stick it to the powerful kind of uh, kind of uh, theme which i like now but uh, i just like the fantasy world that, that he created there was a story in there called The Fly-by-Night, which is just about a wee girl who wakes up because there's a, a little creature on the back of a flying cat chapping on her window uh, at night time. And he invites her out for a, for a ride on the back of the cat and they zoom away miles from home. And I was so entranced by that. And they go up into the space and they can hear the moon singing and the stars singing. And then it's just a, a weird little story. There's not necessarily a particular moral to it, but something about just an encapsulated moment that he managed to, to get was really inspirational. I still dip into that book from time to time. I think it's fantastic.
0: I notice with Ted Jones and Roald Dahl, there's a tremendous sense of mischief. Uh, do you try to install a sense of mischief in your own writing? I do,
1: I think. I ought, my child heroes tend to be quite anti-establishment. or They're not terribly obedient, you know. I don't tend to want to read about obedient children. And I must confess that as a teacher, Obedience is quite far down my list of priorities within the classroom. I encourage kids to question what we're doing. And I have a big poster on the wall saying, what is the point? And I try to get the kids to try to encourage them, you know, this is not a naughty question to ask. You absolutely have the right to know why we're doing stuff. If you don't know what the point is, ask me. And if I can't tell you what the point is, we'll stop doing it. Because, you know, we shouldn't just be doing anything because we do it. That's not a good reason for doing stuff. We need to be asking questions all the time. And you can do that politely, obviously. Uh you don't need to be rude about it, but I love that notion of just let's look at what's established let's just check is this definitely the right way to approach like is this definitely are these people definitely qualified to be telling us what to do you know that kind of thing is very important to think in children's literature
0: quite scary though that approach to give over that element of control is probably the wrong way but that element of power to, to young people or to your readers where you're basically saying look i might not know all the answers i might not be able to tell them but maybe we can work them out together
1: yes but isn't that exciting you know i think i get tired of Very didactic, uh, not teachers, sorry, writers Mm. who have to explain everything to the nth degree. I'm not going to name any names here, but uh, I I liked stories that left a lot to the imagination and where I was allowed to draw conclusions that were not necessarily the ones that the the writer had in mind. And I must say, uh, Callum and the Mountain, my story has a very peculiar ending, which (laughs) I think made it not terribly attractive to big publishers. But bless my publisher, Beaten Track Publishing, they they had the imagination to, to let me get away with it. But it's everything is not wrapped up at the end and I like the idea that you might be a bit haunted by the story for a while after you've read it you might go back to it and uh, reassess bits of it you know months later that's my hope anyway and that kind of writing excites me and that kind of thing in the classroom as well excites me I like I do like relinquishing that that control in a sense Uh, and I think it's important for teachers to recognize that the days of the mortar board and the cane are long behind us. And we really want to be creating a community where we are all, you know, heading in the same direction. And we've got, you know, 33 maybe little minds in front of us who are all perceiving the lesson in a different way. will all have different questions about it. And if they, d- the, the moment that they will disengage is the moment when they think there's no room for them to draw their own conclusions or to explore their own um, sort of lines of inquiry. So that, you know, it's, like, it's an interesting parallel between the, my writing and my teaching. I think I'd like to have that that approach, um, a sort of collaborative approach in both. Did you ever see the anti-colouring books when you were little?
0: No, no, I can't say I have.
1: So they were, they were books rather than pictures that you coloured in. They would be books with mostly blank pages, but at the bottom would be like a little caption. So it would be things like, oh, look, the explorers on the moon have discovered a new alien. And then. The page is blank and you're supposed to draw that and it's left to your own imagination. It's a little kind of Kickstarter. It's like a story starter, but then you you have to do it. And I think that is the imaginative engagement with an idea is much, much more fun and more exciting and probably in the end more productive than... Just being told what to do. Here's step one. Here's step two. Here's step three.
0: Kind of thing. It's much more inclusive, actually. If you allow the young person uh, or the reader to use their imagination and to and to chip in to contribute to the story or making their own make the story their own, in a way, you're you're including them in the creative process.
1: I think so, and I am most delighted when people come to conclusions or spot things that I had no idea were even in there. You know, they've spotted uh, themes or they've spotted. Uh, patterns that were unintentional from me because I think as I mean you'll know yourself it's it's really fun in any creative endeavor when you kind of give in to the the muse if you like or you give in to the the story and let it take control it's definitely good to have a framework that you're working towards but there are moments when you surprise yourself as a writer or as a musician or as anything when something comes along that you weren't expecting and, uh, you know, you could think, where the heck did that come from? Those are the bits that I always enjoy the most uh, when I go back over, was things that I've produced. I'm always most excited by the idea, this, this popped up out of nowhere. This is organic, <laughs> you know, this was a gift from the universe or whatever. You know, that's, that's really exciting. And I would love to imagine that readers get a feeling like that when they're looking at my work or uh, engaging with the story, you know.
0: Alan, you're from the Highlands, you're from Aberdeen. Yeah. What brought you down to Southwest Scotland?
1: Well, I, I had a zoology degree and a master's degree in responsible tourism. And remarkably, that combination didn't have employers lining up at my door. So I was applying for work everywhere, all over Scotland, up in uh, Inverness Shire and in the Highlands and everywhere. And the one job that came up was the ranger at the Creamer Galloway. I don't know if you know the Creamer Galloway down I in do, I do. Yeah, which is it's an organic farm for those who don't know, who produce delicious ice cream and marvellous cheese. Uh, but it's also got uh, miles of nature trails and they've been busy planting trees. They, they, were ju- they just recently made the change to organic farming and commitment to uh, countryside management and being good stewards of the land. So they had funding from Scottish Natural Heritage to employ a ranger and I was fortunate to get that job. So I moved down here with my wife and my baby son, Fergus, he was not even one yet, and uh, I, I worked there for about three years I think as the ranger, tending the nature trails, planning events like pond dipping and dawn chorus walks and things like that. It was pretty idyllic but the best part of that job was taking out school groups, getting them to come and do the, the pond dipping and the nature trails and uh, my wife very cannily pointed out that I could work with school groups full-time, earn twice as much and get six weeks summer holidays. <laughs> so you know that, that made that uh, kind of informed the transition to being a teacher
0: okay so zoology yeah tourism yes being a ranger uh-huh. what made you decide i am going to be a writer
1: well i was a writer first i would say you know i've, I've always been a writer uh, in one form or another and even while i was doing my zoology degree when i should have been studying zoology i was really spending more time uh, learning the art of songwriting with my mm-hmm. with my first band the bigger people up in Aberdeen. my cousin ross and my friend ian We spent every lunchtime and every evening uh, sitting around Ian's flat writing songs together, which had precious little to do with uh, zoology, I have to say. But that's always been a thing I'm compelled to do, if you like. It wasn't really a... I didn't ever have a career in it in mind. I do now, but I didn't uh, at the time. But, you know, through everything that I've been doing, through working in... I've lived in the Peruvian rainforest for a while, I've worked in Zambia, I've been incredibly fortunate with the adventures I've had in life, but through it all, I've been writing. I've been writing songs and writing poems and and also, crucially, not just writing, but collaborating with folk, meeting people. The best way to make friends has been these creative pursuits, uh, you know, and joining together on things like, well, songwriting together and performing together is, has probably brought me more friendships and more lasting kind of love and enjoyment in life than anything else.
0: Speaking of, of, of creating friendships and meeting new people, particularly within the arts and, and, and the creative industries, who are the weak folk storytellers?
1: Ah, well, that was um, me and Susie Briggs, who I think you've also spoken to, Susie, haven't you?
0: Yes, in a previous episode, yeah.
1: Yes, uh, Susie Briggs of Nip fame was the first, after we moved down here from Aberdeen, we had a few months where we didn't really get to meet many folk outside of my work. And Michelle, my wife, was diligently tending Fergus at home. And so we, we felt a wee bit isolated. But then we met Susie, came into the Prima Galloway one day. And I had heard about her from another friend who knew I was a songwriter and said, Oh, you should get to meet uh, Susie. Um, she's a songwriter, she lives in Gatehouse. And the very next day, she walked through the door at Prima Galloway, and I happened to see her name on her membership card. And, oh, you're this. I've been told about you. And uh, so we got to meet her. And she was a kind of a mover and a shaker in the gatehouse music scene with a bunch of other folk who are really talented musicians and writers. And so we just kind of landed on our feet in a kind of ready-made social circle, largely thanks to her. So I'll be eternally grateful to her. And she, as well as being a songwriter, is a storyteller, a fantastic storyteller for kids. She gets all done up with her fairy ears on, pointy ears and wings, and she's a sight to behold. And she holds kids in the palm of her hand. You know, she absolutely has them entranced. And both did a course with Tony Bonning. Do you know, Tony?
0: Yes, yes, I know Tony yes. Bonning. Uh, for people at home, Tony Bonning is um, a very experienced storyteller uh, in South West Scotland. He's registered with TRAX and the Scottish Storytelling Centre. Uh, very experienced. Hugely experienced.
1: He's phenomenal. And he's, he's, he collects stories in Greece, around the world. And he's also well known to all the schools in the area because he goes in and sings to the children and he runs the Kukubri Children's Festival And he and Anne Errington, who's another storyteller who you can often meet up at the Cat Strand in New Galloway, um, they ran a course called The Tail Blazers, probably about 11 or 12 years ago now. And The Tail Blazers was just a storytelling course for oral storytelling, for the idea that um, things don't need to be written down. You know, long before there was written language, we gathered around campfires and we told tales to one another. And that was a really inspirational course. Loads of really... um, Great storytellers went through that and folk who have gone on to get quite well known. Renita Boyle, who's based out in Wigtown. Do you know Renita? She was on that course. There's a poet called Jean Atkin who's, I think she's in Cumbria now, but she's had books published. Lucy Hadley, who's a fabulous artist now. Loads of folk went through that. And uh, so Susie and I decided to join forces and we did storytelling in the Wickerman Festival and in our own Midsummer Music Festival here in Gatehouse. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it, it's fun working with somebody else. It increases the possibilities of the performance, if you like.
0: Uh, Susie also mentioned Tony Bonning and Tailblazers and the the course that they ran being such a, a influential course for the storytelling scene in the South of Scotland, not just necessarily the Southwest of Scotland. I, I think I need to get Tony on. You definitely
1: should, you should. And he'll almost certainly have some, uh, a book that you should uh, be promoting and things. He's a, He's a busy, busy guy. The last I heard uh, his plan was to, what was he going to do? He was going to follow the old drovers' roads with a, with a horse or something and just gather, gather the tales that would have been told by the old drovers. So, you know, he is absolutely, he's got one foot planted firmly in uh, our heritage and our culture and our past, and he's got his, his ear to the ground. He would be a great chap to chat to. I would recommend that. Your listeners would love to hear from him.
0: What is your storytelling style as a performer, and does it reflect your style as a classroom practitioner?
1: I think it probably does. I'm quite I I relish the opportunity to be daft I have to say. Uh which <laughs> storytelling can let you do and if you establish yourself as a storyteller with the kids then they get that when you're being daft it's it's kind of almost like it's a character thing you're it's it's part of a narrative it's not that you actually are daft or or that you are somebody who can be seen with uh, contempt or anything like that it's It it raises the fun levels. It raises the engagement levels instantly. There is something that is absolutely fundamentally magical about storytelling, I think. And I've seen, obviously, Susie and Tony, but lots of storytellers in the region. And a good storyteller can hold a crowd in the palm of their hand in, in a way that is primeval. You know, it feels like as soon as you hear a good story being told, it is as if we are sat around the campfire at the cave mouth, you know, it could be it could be any time in human history that shared notion of one person telling a tale, but the tale is only alive because there are other people listening to it. you know you're right there in that moment, and the audience contribute, and their responses inform how you progress with it and that really a huge amount of what we cover in the classroom, the primary classroom at least can be covered in that way. the idea that this is it's a narrative that we're looking at and and your responses to this should inform the way that we progress through this it's almost like a a performance that we're all engaged in together I hope I don't just stand at the front and project at them that's not the idea but the idea it should be a kind of a, a shared experience with a, with narrative at the, at the core of it and and a sense of fun and uh a sort of voyaging together I suppose so it really did profoundly affect my teaching and I don't actually think I would have become a teacher if I hadn't already had that storytelling experience and and re, and uh, discovered the pleasure of that kind of shared communal experience of working through a, a story together.
0: It's interesting actually, uh, I have a theatre background and when I went to drama school many, many years ago, um, we had two lecturers, and one lecturer, very famous lecturer, he believed that theatre and performance grew out of ancient Greek theatre and it um, grew out of the, the hillsides of Attica and around Athens. But we had another lecturer, her name was Dr. Kara and she believed that performance grew out of shamanism and and grew out of this idea, as you say, of, of collectively getting together and one person deciding to tell a story in some way to a group of people. And yeah. it's strange when you, when you, see, when you go to uh, the Edinburgh um, Fringe Festival, for example, which hopefully will once again be on um, in, in 2021. If you go to the Edinburgh Fringe, you see good street theatre. We as people will automatically step aside and create an audience space and a performance space for the performer. We know it intrinsically in ourselves.
1: I think it's hardwired. I think you're exactly right. I think it's in our genes, if you like. And you know, it's funny, I mean, I have enormous admiration for street performers because I've done a tiny bit of busking in the past, and you've you've got an enormous obstacle to get over, which is, do I really deserve to be here? Am I just going to be annoying folk if I do this? But as soon as you do it, you've changed the atmosphere in that little space that you're in, and people, like you say, totally get it. They totally understand that interaction. It's, it is hardwired. Obviously, there are lots of folk who are busy on their phones or they've got things to do, but... But if you get that one wee spark, and I have to say it's often kids who are the ones who pick up on it. You know, kids are attuned to this like nothing else. They'll make a beeline for it. Oh, something's happening over there. Someone's wants, Someone's telling a story. Someone's doing something interesting. Uh, it's like a little uh, pact that you have with the people around you. And it's. I think it's pretty profound. I think it's pretty central to what makes us human, to be honest.
0: Alan, what is Lost Wasp Records?
1: well it's a hang up from my teenage years i must confess it started in aberdeen when i was in a band called the beaker people with uh mentioned earlier and we assumed that we were going to be uh rock stars obviously because you're going to be you know getting interviewed in the nme that's that's uh, inevitable gonna happen any day now um, but strangely enough um record labels were not coming to our gigs or asking us so we thought well we'll do it ourselves and that lovely arrogance of youth so we made up a label it was called Lost Wasp because the room that we used to record in had a wasp nest in the, in the rafters. And we often came in to find dead wasps all over the computer keyboard and things. So we called it that. Um, and then uh, that band broke up and I moved down here and things that kind of, uh, it was forgotten about for a long time. But because I had been fortunate to meet so many musicians down here who were incredibly talented writing original material, um, the particular hub was the Masonic Arms and Gatehouse here. Which was the, still is the, or well it will be when the pandemic's over, the uh, location of a weekly music session, and uh, often music sessions are people going through the traditional stuff, you know, playing the tunes or singing the hits or whatever. But really, unusually, there I think there were four or five people coming in with original songs. And this was amazing for me because it was uh, I was a songwriter, but there's not much call for it in your daily life, really but knowing that there's this uh place that you can go if you write something new, you'll be able to play it for your pals on thursday night that's and that's it out an audience has heard it it's great um and I thought well this uh maybe this is an opportunity to revive that idea of a kind of cooperative i hesitate to say label because it's only a label because Paul Winter of the Super's drew us a brilliant wee Wasp logo, which we stick on things, but it's really a collective. It'd be better thought it was a collective, and anybody who wants to could be a part of it, but it's particularly for, I guess, more experienced, I hesitate to say long in the tooth, but uh, so- songwriters and musicians who aren't going to get picked up because they're gorgeous, <laughs> with no disrespect to anybody, but um, who have got some life experience and some stories to tell. It's, again, that storytelling thing, you know, um, who, uh, I think they're maybe not uh, people's first port of call for pop hits, but there's a lot of really good, clever songwriting going on, and I wanted to encourage folk to feel that they should be putting it out there, you know, beyond the walls of the Masonic Arms. We should have things available for people to hear if they want to. And it's been, it's it's kind of, it has sputtering starts from time to time. I think we're on our 11th album now with various different acts, and. There are lots of folk who are kind of supporters or peripherally on it, you know, producers and artists and things. Uh, it will it will burst into fantastic life any day now, I'm sure, and we'll have the national media uh, swarming down to the and Gallery to ask about it, but it's mostly a, and it's used to hang out with pals, I think, to be honest.
0: Alan, I'm detecting a theme or a common thread in your work and the work that you do. This idea of capturing the ephemeral, of capturing something that is passing. It occurred to me when you were talking about your storytelling and also about your writing and also about uh, working with uh, musicians who, as you say, are long in the tooth, your words, um, (laughs) who might not necessarily be picked up by a a label. These stories or the the sound, this music, this creativity that could be lost, this need to, uh, to capture it, to sort of record it. Would you say that's true?
1: Yeah, that's really astute. I've never thought about that before. That, might, that probably is part of it. I've always felt, like a lot of writers do, that I'm not really a, a mainstream kind of a guy. I've, I've not, you know, I wasn't a football fan as a kid, or a, a, I liked peculiar music that my friends didn't... I liked some of the music that my friends did like too, but you know, I, was, I could sing along to roll with it with my pals, Oasis, but then I'd go home and listen to The Incredible String Band, which was not a, a group activity at the time, I have to say. Um, so... I suppose I've been comfortable positioning myself in a peripheral place. I'm very happy that there is amazing mainstream music produced, that there's uh, marvelous pop hits with incredible production values there for folk who want it. But I've always been drawn to the, the kind of, that kind of instantaneous art, I guess, happenings. You know, the old 60s hippie idea of a happening. Mm. I really like that notion that you've been, you've been privileged to witness a thing that you've been there in the moment of creation and that's that
0: yeah man that's
1: absolutely something i'd like to try and capture and uh the best play the best way to do that of course is with live gigs because you really are in the moment there with with people or live storytelling or live poetry readings and things and we are really lucky in this region for stuff like that you know the stove and freeze is awesome the bakehouse and gatehouse wigtown festival we, we're really spoiled for choice but that that thing of a of a thing that's this is only going to happen like this just this once Mm. it's not stored on a computer it's not it hasn't been tweaked with for hours and hours and hours it's not been auto-tuned i'm not having a dig at that because i know a lot of folk like that and it's great if you can do it and if i could do it maybe i would but i can't so uh but I, i i like that thing of being privileged to witness a thing that's only going to happen this once and um yeah definitely if you can record that sort of thing if you can or if you can simulate it in in writing then you've done something a wee bit magical i think.
0: Alan, how, as a creative person, have you been coping with the lockdown?
1: Well, it's a good question. And I've, I follow a lot of children's writers on Twitter and Facebook and things like that. And I know a lot of people have really been struggling. Uh, you would think it would be great, you know, shut down all the distractions of daily life. But I suppose it is a time of heightened anxiety. You know, the reason we're all on this kind of pause is because there's a horrible virus going around and people that we know and love might be affected. So. It's been difficult for folk to get started. And I have got, I am working on a few things. And you know, the lockdown book that Cranachan did was a great chance to just get something out there. But I think it's important for folk who are writers or, I mean, in all walks of life, to be a bit kind to yourself, be a bit soft on yourself in a time like this and assume that the important things that you would be seeking to record about it, they're all going in, you're absorbing it all. And at some point in the future, you'll be ready to to respond to it, if you see what I mean. You know that this might not be the best time to be trying to sort it all out in your head. We'll know more about it when it's finished. We'll 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 know how we feel about it, maybe in years to come. I don't think you need to rush to to respond to things necessarily. But uh, I I have enjoyed elements of it. I must say, and I've enjoyed the chance to read more and listen to more music and do things which require time that we often don't feel we have when everything's normal, you know? So, and that, that all informs your own creative output too. If you're able to absorb what other folk have done in the past, then that's really good fodder. You know, it's fuel to your creative fires, if you like. So it's been a mixed bag. It's, it's, it's a really peculiar time for everybody, but I, I would hate to think that there are folk beating themselves up because they haven't written their, their magnum opus over the last three months. Because why would you? You're, you're, it's a new situation, it's weird, it's a bit unnerving, and there are higher priorities, you know, we've got to make sure we're safe and well in the meantime. It will come, I think. So I'm kind of, uh, that's maybe just my excuse for being lazy, but <laughs> that, that is, uh, that's kind of how I feel about it at the moment.
0: Besides the fact that, you know, you're making excuses for being lazy. Um, are you currently working on any current projects or are you planning other projects so hopefully that will kick into, into life once the lockdown is over?
1: Yeah, I'm working on a few things actually. Um, I, I hadn't ever planned to write a sequel to Callum and the Mountain, I felt it was a standalone story, but having gone into schools and read bits of it and heard from some audience, massively gratifyingly the one question everybody asked was when's the sequel coming out so i have kind of dived back into that world and that's underway i have another novel coming out before christmas which is actually when i wrote before i wrote callum in the mountain and it's called jack's well and it's inspired by people like alice Liddell and christopher robin milne you know people who were featured in their parents stories and who had to spend their entire life in the shadow of their fictional alter ego if you like so um it's about a boy he's 14 years old now and he's had a bit of a breakdown with the stress of a whole bunch of things it's, it's kind of a, a coming of age story but it's an, a story about finding your identity and it's hard enough for anybody particularly teenagers in this day and age but imagine how much harder it would be if everybody thinks they already know you because they've read about you and your dad's stories and it's, um, it's doubly hard for him because there have been films made of these stories, and the actor who plays his character in the films is at the same school as him, and it's a whole it's a whole uh, can of worms for the poor lad, And it, but it's mixed in with extracts from the stories. So you've got the, the kind of fantasy adventure of his, that his, his dad has written, in which he's a six-year-old, a six-year-old hero, and then you've got his kind of recovery journal of how he's getting back from this kind of break from reality that he had, and uh, I'm quite excited about that coming out. It's a very different story, but I'm it's it's uh, a few years old and uh, yeah you know other things too i'm trying to write some picture books uh yeah working on that still writing poetry for uh, which is not children's poetry and a few musical endeavors collaborations with people so yeah just try and get, uh, the more i can do the happier i am really and the more different folk i can work with the happier i am uh, you know i can't wait the one thing that i really can't wait for is Getting in a room with some musicians and j- having a jam—you know—that's going to be my. That's going to be the moment when things are back to, to normal for me. So yeah, that's the kind of. That's what I'm. That's where I'm at right now.
0: Alan, we've just come to the end of the show. It's been amazing having you on the on the podcast. We'll have to get you in some one of these days.
1: I'd love that. I was actually I was there when Camilla Parker Bowles came and opened it up. So I've got to. I have been round. It's amazing, and I'm I'm heart sore for you that you have to be closed all this time because it's such a superb place and resource and um you know when when everything's up and running it's going to be doing really great things for the the kids of the region and hopefully for the whole of scotland and i can't wait yeah get me in there I, i can't wait to do something with you all
0: absolutely fantastic thank you nice one john